This is CC Confidential, a selection of bonus clips from our podcast recording, exclusively for conservative curious subscribers. In this segment, we talk to Ryan Peterson about the different ways to think about democracy, what enables productive discourse, how he processes information with ADHD, and if he's planning on staying in LA. I was just wondering, like, what are you into these days? Like, what's what are you researching? I just took a break from any political discourse. It was just so low quality, so uninteresting, especially partisan back and forth. But especially Palladium Act just sort of opened the door to just a more thoughtful perspective about how to change things just in a more analytical way that's thoughtful and not radical just for radicalness sake. So how are people thinking about politics and how do you think they should be thinking about politics? It's a little difficult to talk about how you think people should think. An interesting idea that I ran into in The Human Condition by Arendt, she talks about how the modern market society really puts us all from the standpoint of a worker. Democracy began in ancient Greece. It was sort of almost like the worker and the, the man of politics were sort of separate roles in the sense that you would sort of keep your work thing in your private life, and then you would exit from that to enter into a more non-commoditized space where you would have more free time and more uh, and more time to just meet with people, talk about it, and think in a way that was almost almost like politics was not material. I was going to say, it's funny you bring that up because Curtis Yarvin, when he spoke at, I think, Base to Lose last month, he said something very similar of, it's funny how democratize is a very good connotation. When you say, like, I want to democratize information into the masses, everyone's like, amazing, that's great. But if you say, I want to politicize this, it's like, oh, that guy is you know, to some way malevolent, he's doing something that's kind of wrong. And I think that's the connotation that we're now seeing. It's like politicizing stuff is bad, but democratizing it is good, but they almost come from the same roots, right? I've been thinking more about just the role of democracy and its relationship to more grander, let's say, ideals. I think there are two ways you can look at democracy as a tool, just having people vote to influence them just as a way to run society effectively. And you can also look at it as a lifestyle, an ideal that we sort of measure everything to. Fukuyama talks about how if we just sort of stop at Hobbes, let's say, you get like Singapore or you get modern China, where it's sort of mildly authoritarian, um, but there's a minimum respect for property laws and things like that, and capitalism works fine and so on. He says that if you just stop at man's material desire, you sort of get that. But then the desire for recognition and more non-material uh, desires is what gets you to democracy. I, I find that interesting to think about democracy as a tool versus democracy as almost uh, the ethical bar that we measure everything to. I read The End of History and the Last Man by Francis Fukuyama, and that's influenced some of my thinking on that. Right. It's funny to me because he's also the most probably misread thinker of maybe the last 50 to 100 years, because if you ever talk to anyone about Fukuyama, the thing that they'll say is that completely out of context, they'll just say that he said, you know, the liberal order is the last thing that can exist. But that's not what he said, right? He just said it's the last evolution of maybe this like Marxist thought in a way of like, you know, we kind of, there's no progression from here and maybe we can recede, but it's kind of hard to envision right now something that can like 10x, 5x the governance structure of like liberal democracy. Liberal capitalist democracy. It's interesting how it connects to some very not as liberal friendly thinkers like Mark Fisher, who um, hmm. had an idea of capitalist realism saying we can imagine the end of the world, but we can't imagine the end of capitalism. It's similar with liberal democracy too, at least in the West. Uh, we have a very hard time imagining anything else. Fisher actually started the nonprofit I used to work at virtual futures oh really that's before, cool. before he died yeah it was uh so warwick where i went to was had nick land who was teaching you know the yeah 
So he, that ethos is still there. And I think that's something that's now coming into like all these technocratic circles. Like Steve Bannon, Steve Bannon is obviously a very uh, huge admirer of land and Fisher. And it's so crazy to see somebody that, you know, who was once a teacher is now like entering this uh, thought sphere. Oh yeah, definitely very bizarre. And that's something I've also been exploring a little bit, the interchange between uh, academia and places where philosophy and other research um, ends have traditionally taken place in a more amorphous sphere of internet, nonprofit organizations, even anonymous accounts, and more traditional publications that uh, for the most part do not publish anonymous accounts. But recently, you know, maybe a little bit, I think American Mind uh, public, has published several anonymous accounts by now under various names many of my friends online have become completely anonymous i mean we met anonymously i didn't know your name i can say like probably 30 percent of my online friends are completely anonymous i have no idea i couldn't find them if i wanted to yeah it's quite interesting i'm really i'm not on hardcore anonymous because i i think it would be weird to keep insisting on a pseudonym when i'm meeting people with real names and so on like i said i'm not particularly hiding anything in fact when I have um, more substantial content to share, like a blog or something, I will link my real name to my account. My username tag, Resonant Pyre, is an anagram of Ryan Peterson, which I, I thought was just kind of nifty when I made it. What was your foray into the Twitter sphere? I got it in August 2018, but I don't think I tweeted anything until like the early 2020s, late 2019 at least. As events got a little more interesting, I started just seeing more of a sphere beyond just the bloggers that I followed. And then I started following them and saying, wow, there's this whole community of people. Obviously, a lot of that, that sphere is the counterpart to a very real scene in the real world. Although I looked at um, your guys' site. Obviously, you do those uh, salons or whatever. I assume that was in person at one point. I was curious what your impression was of university life and what you were learning there versus your own journey of self-education. Certainly, I can't speak to the whole of university life since I was just a freshman. I would say that there's crossover in the sense that we're reading very important foundational thinkers and they're sort of relevant then and they're relevant now. Like I, read, I first read The Human Condition. One major difference is just that given the, the time constraints of one, taking multiple classes and two, um, having sort of graded assignments and essays can push you into a more utilitarian mindset. I did a recent virtual event with an organization that I work for, Lincoln Network, and it was called Reimagining Higher Education. We had Anthony Hennon on. He's the managing editor at the Martin Center for Academic Renewal. He was saying that a lot of people, especially in tech now, are trying to tear that down the idea that universities are necessary. To him, he's like, there's so much more the social aspect or just having that environment where other people are kind of like on the same path really adds to your own learning experience than most most people would give credit to. I think that's largely true. And that is one nice thing about UChicago that even though the core is a little bit distributed, there are some books that are so foundational that they sort of pop up for everyone, like Plato's Republic, for example. And then you can have shared conversations with anyone in any year about the sort of foundational texts. I think just having a common reference point in general sort of enables productive discourse. And that's actually one reason why I went more online is for certain more, let's say, obscure thinkers that have very interesting provocative ideas that I think are good as critiques, if not productive, but they're worth considering. You went from an in-real-life campus life with in-real-life friends to COVID and now cultivating this online persona and also a community around that persona. What differences do you find between your in-real-life friends and your online friends? 
For any successful discourse, the common reference points are important. Among online friends that I've cultivated on Twitter, there is particular common reference points. To my knowledge, I've never really、uh, interacted with a lot of these thinkers in person at all. I'm sure if I lived somewhere、uh, like San Francisco, I might. Just coincidentally, I've noticed a lot of this is based in that area. A lot of interesting thinkers. You know, you said this one thing. You tweeted it actually. Of like the only reason you're not confused about everything at once is the limitation of your attention. And you also mentioned that you know you have I don't know how severe, but a form of ADHD. So I'm kind of wondering, have you like stored all of this knowledge somewhere? Do you have a method to kind of control the madness? I would say there's a method in development. Ever since getting diagnosed with ADHD a few years back, I've just been I've been thinking more consciously about information in my attention span. I read this nice paper by Herman. I'll just quote the one little bit that I remember very vividly. He talked about how a successful information processing subsystem consumes more information than it produces. You want to consume more information than it produces, and that you reference back to. So this can mean condensing in a, in a book. It could just mean getting the most、uh, useful or important quotations. A lot of the information these days is simply in the world. You can, if you have a book like a. Like say a dictionary, you don't need to memorize the dictionary. You check it when there's a word that you forget. And if you were to preemptively try and learn all the obscure words in the dictionary, it would probably be a waste of time. I think that just having a lot of resources on hand that you know where to go to is sort of useful in categorizing it all. Rome Research is one that I found it intermittently used. You produce a lot of information, but when you check that page, it's sort of condensed all of it into a very brief page that you can look at and think, okay, so I talked about the idea of freedom. In a political context, there. Then I talked about it in another context there, and then I can sort of skim and go to the one most relevant to what I'm thinking about. So it's a way to sort of pick up chains of thought that you sort of、uh, left a very long time ago. I use this other thing called Obsidian, which is a native Rome, because Rome is actually on the cloud. And me being、uh, like a crypto geek, I'm kind of like,、uh, I don't know how much I trust these guys. The newsletter I do in written form kind of connects these ideas better than just a graph. The graph isn't enough for me. It's definitely about the consistency of pumping out ideas versus just the organization. The other thing I do is just the classic notebook. Typically, while I'm reading, I will try and summarize the most important bits and then have my own thoughts on it beneath. Recently, I've been just getting little Manila folders where I just tear out the pages from the notebook and then staple them together and put them in a sort of folder that has a particular concept or thinker. Like I have a Fukuyama folder where I just sort of rip out the pages and put them there. And then when I'm thinking about him in particular, I can sort of skim that. Sometimes I put the most important stuff from there into online. A blog would be the natural next step for that. Communicating ideas in a more longer form over a long period of time is really the best way to, for sure, establish that you know something and that you know that other people can know it from you. Ryan, so considering that you know you really cater to like an abstract level of thought, and that could be something that you're doing, you know, even after university, and considering that a lot more people are working remotely, you can write anywhere in the world. Do you plan on staying in LA? I'm definitely seeing myself leaving LA. I don't actually like driving all that much. Los Angeles is a city that caters to cars. I definitely would prefer to live in a more walkable city. I know that SF is also very. Although it has its own problems, it is a very walkable city in, in the parts of it. If I'm, I'm correct about that, right? Yeah, you should come up here. Have you been to San Francisco? A while ago, when I was much younger. It's funny. Everyone who is in SF always dreams about relocating elsewhere, and everyone who's not in SF, especially abroad, they always dream of moving to SF, which is like the ultimate paradox.